Welcome to the latest podcast that you're listening to. We're going way back in time. Boys, we're doing something strange. We're going all the way back to 2004, back when our band was voting for John Kerry. Yep, and that was a long time ago. We weren't even famous. We weren't anything, uh, even close to anything. We were still desperately trying to get anyone to come to our shows. And we're going to take you on a little journey of our first album. How it got made, little stories behind the songs, the context of being pre-famish. A lot of hyphens in that one. And this is going to be a big old two-part podcast, right? Yes. We're going to take a deep, deep dive into our fir- first album, which we uh, recorded while we were in college. So you're going to hear a lot about the extremely juvenile and idiotic jukebox like us. Jesse, do you have anything to add to that? Let's hear that theme song. What a great idea. Pretty soon I'm going to be famous. A little more famous than you Certain people will greet my name with A proud and mighty Boo! And one glorious day my songs will be played At an airport chilies too Why yes I'm gonna be famous Did you know that we've been a band for so long that we weren't always called the band name that we have? What? I'm asking you guys. I'm asking you guys. I had no idea. Oh, no. This is the first I've heard. No? We used to have a cool band name. We were called the Sunday Mail. So cool. I don't get it. It's based off of a Marcy Playground song from their second album. So it's that's not the album that Sex and Candy is on? No, no, it's off They're the other album. I like didn't I hadn't been exposed to a lot of music at that point in my life, truly. This is freshman year. And also I think everyone should know that Tommy had no part in that name. We didn't know Tommy yet. We had another guy that we don't like to talk about because it makes some people named Tommy uncomfortable. <laughs> but there's another guy in the band very briefly. No, I love it. I love it. This is two thousand three. Yeah. Let's start at the beginning. Oh yeah, go ahead, Jess. So this is Jesse. I play drums in Jukebox the Ghost, formerly the Sunday Mail. Ben and I met pretty much right away, freshman year at George Washington University in 2000 and frickin' three. Frickin' three. Frickin' three. Uh, and then I forgot the rest of the story. Really? That was it? <laughs> that was it. No, and um, the Sunday Mail. Okay, yeah. So you, you can talk about- Do you want me to take over? Talk about the Sunday Mail. That incredible band. Man, I can't wait for more Jesse segments like that. <laughs> Jesse and I lived next to each other in the dorms, and we were friends. And like within a week, we were hanging out all the time. And in the dorm, there happened to be a drum kit and some like a piano and some instruments. So we started like started jamming and playing music together. If there hadn't been a drum, I'm just curious. If there hadn't been a drum kit and a piano in the building, do you think you guys would have played together? No. You no. really think that? Impossible. <laughs> I bet we would have found a way. This is a tangent, but it was a city school. I Where was I going to put a drum kit? So true. What would we have done? I don't know. That's why I was kind of curious. All I want, I knew, like, all I wanted to do was start a band. I had never started a band before. I always played in other people's bands in high school. I wanted to sing my own yeah. stuff and play my own music. You would have. You and know, it would have been you. You were the only drummer I knew. I wouldn't have had gear. But we would have found gear for you. Wouldn't you have taken your kit down? Well, Ben was taking classes in the music department, so I'm sure you guys would have found a way to use a practice space or something like that. But it's weird to think about that, like how just putting a drum kit and a piano in front of you guys probably has a lot to do with our existence today. Right. Absolutely. I don't think I would have practiced much or played much had the drum kit not been in my dorm room. 
So you're saying all I would have needed to do to change the whole fate of my life. Find a different drummer. Find a different drummer. My <laughs> God. Well, I mean, you, you guys know how badly I wanted to like play music in college and like start a band. And, and I was in the next dorm over, which did not have a drum kit. And so therefore, I didn't have a band. So you guys, you, you guys should talk about Tiago. Tiago's- Tiago Tiago is, is, is one of... Uh, if Tiago, if you're listening, hello. <laughs> how you doing, buddy? <laughs> Tiago was great. And we formed the band. It was the three of us. The original guitarist of the Sunday Man. The original guitarist. After, after freshman year, he moved back to Brazil, where his family is originally from. But yeah, I mean, we, we played shows the whole year. We had our friend Brian quote-unquote, manage us. He was in business school and would price our CDs at either $10, $15, or $20 to see what the going rate for a shitty college band's demo (laughs) CD was. Turns out the going rate is zero. I didn't know you guys had, like, flexible surge pricing for those CDs. Brian, Brian was like, he was like, he's taking his first business classes and he was, like, trying to work on supply and demand. He would have stood in front of Thurston trying to, he probably walked past him at some point. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't catch wind of you guys at all. Um, I didn't even know there was a band in our grade. So it was very exciting to me when I found out you guys were already playing. We weren't really playing shows. We did do like after we graduated, not after we graduated, after freshman year, we played a couple shows on the East Coast, but it like, they were weird shows. I don't really remember them. This is oh, yeah. pre Tommy days. It was, it was, it was dark. Yeah. We did like a Long Island tour. <laughs> That's right. We did a Long Island tour. It was dark. <laughs> I remember this is too deep and no one cares about this part, but Brian's dad bought a really nice air mattress. And we were idiots and just like jumped on it so much that we popped it. And he just looked disappointed in us. And I thought, yeah, we're college kids, but <laughs> we're still kind of idiots. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, Tiago t- uh, moved to Brazil that summer, didn't come back sophomore year. And Jesse and I had all these songs that we wanted to play. And lo and behold, in the music department, we saw a flyer that listed a bunch of bands that I had only sort of heard of. <laughs> <laughs> The Talking Heads. Who else did you mention? Talking Heads, I'm sure it was Radiohead and Wilco. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. I don't know at that point if I felt it was a social um, problem to put fish on there, but they might have been on there. I don't know if it was. Or you you might have buried it. I think I was like aware they were not cool yeah. at that point. I didn't even, that wouldn't have even been a deal breaker for me yet. Yeah, you, you would have thought I meant real big fish. Right, which is, <laughs> that's just necessary. Just, Jesse's yeah. favorite band. Yeah. <laughs> So, well, I, I, so I put up that flyer trying to start a band, which I kind of already had and was jamming with some people. And then you guys, I don't remember, was it, which one of you guys called me? I don't know, but it was from one of the, like the dorm room landlines. Yeah. You called my landline. I didn't have a cell phone yet at that point. Oh yeah. 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 So I just happened to be around, which is very fortuitous for me. And then jammed in again, Brian's house that they had. The blue door the blue door yeah and i remember being like these guys are really fast like everything they play is really fast but this is fun isn't it funny how little has changed (laughs) (laughs) yeah everything we play is still really really fast yeah but but, i mean we go so far back that like i taught you guys a song by from my high school band you know and we made you learn all of tiago's really weird guitar parts his guitar parts were crazy i do remember like studying them closely and going like what the hell is going on? Like they were, they're cool, but they were like the kind of thing I would never, ever think of. You did well. Like there's like a three month window where I think you had to play those parts and then slowly worked your way away from them. Yes. But like, you know, we were like, you're joining our band and these are the parts. 
Yeah, I took it seriously. I remember I like really learned the parts. You know, I know you did. You did. Anyways, that was wild. We played mostly on campus shows. Like it was like benefit shows or like the spring fling, like opening as first of six, that kind of thing. Yep. We entered every battle of the bands that we could enter. We won most of them. <laughs> we did lose to a high school band though. We did. Right. We did. They were so good though. Yeah. They were good. What were they called? The lemons? Something lemons. Lemon heads? No, the lemon. The lemon parties. No. The lemon parties. No. lemon parties. They didn't look like they were in high school. I'll tell you that. The lemon party. <laughs> it's easy. <laughs> so we're college band playing every crappy gig we could possibly get. And this is this is sort of segueing us into the into the future, moving us slowly. We played a benefit show in the school cafeteria in front of the Chick-fil-A. They set up a stage and there was nobody there. It was like, you know, maybe 10 people, but there were four bands playing. And one of which the bands was playing was Seth Count who at that time was a high schooler in Pennsylvania who was precocious enough and had a Doogie Howser-like booking ability that he had booked himself at a college as a high school student. And I remember we, we hung out with him, and he, he really liked our set, whatever mess we were doing at that time. We stayed in touch with him, and then when he went to NYU, Seth decided that he wanted to manage us as his, what's, his freshman year, sophomore year project? To, I think sophomore year. To be fair, he tricked us. He absolutely tricked us. He's a duplicitous man, and I know he's listening to this podcast. He invited us up to New York under the, the, the premise that he wanted to record one of our songs, which he did, and he did a great job. He was taking like an engineering class at NYU, and so he had access to a studio for two days and recorded this old tune called The Difference. And while we were there, he took us out for drinks with his brother's fake ID and asked and said, I, I want to manage you guys. I've never done it, but I think I could do a good job. And he's been managing us for how long? 18 years? 18 years. Forever. Yeah, that's messed up. Yeah, and he's, he's crushing it. Seth, I'm so sorry. Yeah, we did, this, <laughs> we did this to each other, but mostly we did this to you. It's his fault, that's true. Yeah. But yeah, okay, so, so rewinding a little bit. This all, most of this happened, we met Seth while we were the Sunday Mail, all this stuff. We all, our junior year, were lucky enough to be able to study abroad. I went to London, Tommy went to Rome, Jesse went all the way to Australia. Moo. And... <laughs> what sound does a kangaroo make? I think that's I, it. I'm panicked. You just have to say it in an Australian <laughs> accent. Yeah, just yeah. Come on. Can you do? Can you say "moo" in an Australian accent? I don't think I can. Can we? The I people think want it, to hear you try. Though. I think it has to have like two syllables. More. <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> this is this is a really dumb detour for 20 seconds. But one time I was sitting next to a really dopey guy from Australia on a flight to Alaska. He was taking a vacation, I guess. And he was filled with questions that should have, he should have looked up in advance. And uh, so he would, he would like, you know, tap me on the shoulder where I had, you know, headphones in and be like, is it cold? And I was like, you know, it's, no, it's summer. It's fine. And then at one point he, he taps me on the shoulder and he goes, are there bears? <laughs> Meaning, are there bears? And to which I was like, yes, there are bears. Anyways, when I think of an Australian accent, I think of, are they bears? <laughs> what do the bears say, Jesse? They go, you got any dead news? My buddy, Phil. <laughs> Phil, what's up, dude? He, uh, him and I, like, we had tattoos at the time. You no. still have tattoos. That's how they work. <laughs> <laughs> they don't go away. That's a really good point. But you always call them dead news. Dead news. The tattoos or the bears? No, the tattoos. <laughs> Why did you say that's... Okay, I got it. 
So anyway, we all studied abroad, and when we came back, we wanted to put the past behind us a bit, in the because uh, we, you know, we were wise at the ripe old age of. 21. And we wanted to change our band name and start fresh and be able to put all the awkward demos and all the things behind us. And so we very democratically came up with the name Jukebox the Ghost. I wanted ghost. I want. I thought jukebox was a fun word. And I remember you you had thought about a democracy of ghosts yeah. was one of the, name, the names that you pitched, which is actually a very cool name, but t- difficult to say ghosts. Yeah. I think this, it's just tough. Jukebox the Ghost is much easier on the tongue. <laughs> It's barely, yeah. No, it's it's from a it's from a Nabokov novel uh, called Penin, which some people get excited about. And then Jesse has a limited vocabulary. <laughs> very nice to look at, though. He's a sweet man. I know the yeah best words like the. <laughs> That's how Jukebox like, the Ghost was born. Eh? I wanted I wanted to be. I feel like there was like a you the know verses. The, verses. the verses. Not a good band name, but uh, you know. I want to be a the band, like the Smiths, the Cure, and whatever. So I got the, put it together, and it's just a fantastic band name. We didn't have a lot of fans at the time, but you all remember we got some we got some fan blowback from changing the name. Yeah, well, we we all lived in one dorm room together, and we yeah we got that envelope under the door, which I don't really remember what it said, but it was anonymous, and it was warning us that it was a terrible idea to change our band name to Jukebox the Ghost. Yeah. You know, we had like enough fans at the time that I could see there being someone who's just like, how could you do this? You can draw 50 people to Staccato Lounge. (laughs) Like, why would you change your band name? Yeah, totally. They'll never see you again. Man, those shows. Where was that club that we played? We wheeled it all. uh, Karma. Oh, for the record, Karma. Club Karma. In D.C., we, you know... We went to school at like an, un, it's right in the center of DC. We're six blocks from the Washington Monument, same from the White House. Like people don't have cars. They don't have apartments. We are just all in dorms and there's no way to get around. This is obviously pre-Uber, Lyft, whatever, which would have been so awesome. But we used to steal, but borrow, but steal <laughs> the huge plastic garbage bins. I don't know how, how, what else you would call them. You would, uh, one would call them a dumpster on wheels. A dumpster on wheels. We would steal them from various buildings on campus, wheel them up to our rooms and fill them with gear and then roll them all the way th- like through the city, blocks and blocks to whatever gig we were in and, th- and then wheel them back. <laughs> Which actually, why did we not think that was crazy? Because in hindsight, you're like, first of all, like just stealing a dumpster from your school is bizarre. Putting your gear into a dumpster where there's like trash residue is disgusting. <laughs> and then showing up to a club with a dumpster <laughs> filled with gear is a huge, a huge social liability and a red flag for any club owner. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> it seemed normal. It seemed like it felt okay. Can you imagine being the booker at a club that night and this band shows up, like you see them coming down like five blocks away with the dumpster and you think, surely, surely it's not this piano in a dumpster. <laughs> and like, this was a city school. Like no one, no one, I don't know a single person who had a car, at least in the beginning of our no you know, cars, first no. three years, no one had a car and Uber didn't exist. And also to be fair, we didn't, like we weren't actually playing anywhere legit most of the wheeling around was on campus but then we got this show at like club karma i don't know but it's just some tiny stage in the back of like a a club and i remember that show specifically because the big my big piano broke so i had to play on this little alesis qs 6.1 synthesizer which i had sorry gw music department i still love you and and uh, you're great i stole from them by accident by not returning it and i played on it and it was this little midi thing and i was 
I pushed against for many years, like even having a synth. But then once we got it, I was like, okay, that's cool. But you know, I'm used to a piano, which has like, you know, resistance in the keys. And this thing was just this little plastic piece of crap. It was also one of the first shows where we were out and like the club was giving us drinks and I got very drunk and, and played so hard that I bruised the tip of every one of my fingers. That's so rock and roll, man. That was awesome. Yeah. yeah. We're such a heavy band. <laughs> We're like, we play, when we use MIDI keyboards, it's like heavy, <laughs> really heavy. And then at some point, our manager, Seth, told us like, you guys need to make a record. And we were like, no, like that, that costs money. We had yeah. done, we had done like some really mediocre recordings through random people, nothing official. And Seth was the one who said, make an album. Yeah. So he put us in touch with like two different like producers, one in Philly and one in North Carolina. And we talked to them on the phone and I don't know how we ended up making the decision. It might've been just a scheduling thing, but we ended up. Honestly, I think in, in the, in the great world of like naivete, we were like, this producer got the band Zox signed to Republic. So he'll be able to do that for us too. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Because <laughs> back at that, we used like, that's what they used to say. And producer always like, y'all get you signed. Like work with me. I'll make your record. I got this band on, you know, Interscope or this band on what? It doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't work like that for us. But yeah, we, we picked Head Comerford down in, was it technically Raleigh, Durham or Chapel Hill? Uh, Raleigh. Raleigh. Yep. Raleigh, Raleigh North, North Carolina. Carolina. And we went right after our Christmas break and slept on the floor of Tommy's sister's pregnant friend's place. Nailed it. Shout out to Whitney. <laughs> hey, Whitney. How's your 18-year-old? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. That's true. Uh, guest list is on us. Whitney's unnamed child. Oh, no. Wow. Wow. Ain't that something? I hadn't thought about that. But yeah, so we, we had this batch of songs coming in with our fresh new band name. We had turned a new leaf. And Ben, you had, so when, when Ben studied abroad he, he in, in England, he came back with a, a series of songs that to me felt like very cohesive, like they were of a certain mindset and musical. You were like playing in a musical framework that I can hear now, you know? Yeah, it's funny. Thinking about it, it was clearly all the stuff I was ingesting from just being in music school, like, I mean, we'll get it. I think we're going to, we're going to do deep dives into each of the songs, but it's like very much like everything I was writing was musical theory, music theory based. I spent a lot of time like traveling, you know, this is before a little, like I, I like memo recorders or whatever. So I was like writing out the sheet music for songs and ideas as I found them. So like good day, which is the first song like that. I still have the sheet music where I was writing out the da 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 pattern where the hits would be and how the vocals would go. So I was like trying to be that kind of a composer that that composed on a page. It's interesting that you th- it, that it feels like it's all part of one thing, and and I think it is, but it wasn't on purpose. Well, there's like a there's a cheekiness and a musical flair that I think like under my skin, hold it in, Victoria, good day. They all share some DNA. I don't I don't know how to describe it. It's like this arpeggiated kind of classical quirky like a lot of wordplay. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of wordplay. It's very it, honestly, it's weird it's it's interesting to me that you were studying abroad in England because I don't know if you intended this, but there is something about it where it feels kind of like British to me. Like the cheekiness and the wordplay. I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, that, that, ch- I was like really embracing my dad's English for, I know you all know this. I'm not telling you that. 
But for all the listeners, like my, my dad was born in England and there's like a long, there's a big, rich English family history there. And I, and I, that was my first time visiting and I felt really connected to them. And my great grandmother, the lady Hilaria was still alive. She was 98 at that time. And she, so like I was, I was feeling very close to that whole part of my extended family tree. So yeah, I guess I was sort of consciously or, or otherwise embracing that. Yeah. I also feel like the beginning of, you know, the batch of songs that ended up on our first record, Let Live and Let Ghost, it's actually us reining it in and like simplifying a little bit more from the band we had in college, which was really chaotic. Like we somehow were getting more and more hectic and then just in time for us to record. I think we ended up doing something that, you know, was a little bit more responsible. And when I first met Ben, your songs were actually pretty... They were earnest. They were they were simple. They were catchy. Somewhere along the line, we got we got a little crazy. We got a little cuckoo, and then <laughs> and then yeah, I don't know. It was us like simplifying it and focusing a little bit. Yeah, I got look. I still get excited about notes. You all know this. Like I love lots of notes. I love writing things that are complicated and silly and do musical things that are exciting for the sake of musical things even though it doesn't always serve the song or the listener or anything <laughs> like that. Most of, most of those have not made it onto records, which is which is great. Yeah, we so as the Sunday Mail also just to be clear, I mean we we probably went through I mean I'm sure 20 25 songs at least that we played a bunch and never actually recorded. Yeah. And which we do have some live recordings of from back in college and I do want to do an episode at some point where we derail the the famous concept and I and just do an endurance test to see how long we can make it listening to some of these songs. It sounds so yeah. horrible. I feel like I have to apologize to so many ex-girlfriends when we do that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, for those of you who are, who are interested in that kind of thing, for both of you who are interested in that, we'll do a deep dive. In- yeah, both of you. <laughs> I think he actually just means me and you. No, no, that was the joke. <laughs> Thank you for being here, both of you. You can expect (laughs) maybe at some point a Sunday mail deep dive, but not today, Satan. Absolutely. Because we're talking about Let Love and Let Ghost, which, so Ben, you came in with all these songs that were sort of this British wordplay cheeky songs about love. And I had come back from studying abroad in Italy. And I'd had a very different, I think, study abroad experience from you guys where I didn't really connect with a lot of people in the program. Like it was it was kind of a hodgepodge. And I don't know, for whatever reason, I ended up traveling alone a lot. And I was really into checking out all of these old apocalyptic Roman and Italian, generally speaking, churches where like, you know, you'd have a church filled with skulls or you'd have like just these huge frescoes of like doom and gloom. And I had a pocket copy of the Book of Revelations that someone had given me at some point. I think. Wait, it was just the Book of Revelations. It wasn't a Bible, a book, a pocket Bible. No, you're right. It was. A, it was a miniature Bible. It was a miniature Bible. Okay, but only New Testament. It was no. There was no Old Testament. And for the record, I am. I was raised Jewish, so I'm. This was the New Testament. Very new for me. New for me. <laughs> it, it, it was actually a New Testament. It was a New Testament. Yeah. <laughs> you, you just cut it in half and discarded the old one. Yeah. Yeah. There was there was a Hunter S. Thompson book that I read in college that used the Book of Revelations in the beginning of each chapter to kind of as like a funny preface for things about the Reagan era. And I remember being like, what is the Book of Revelations? And so I was reading it and kind of mining it for inspiration and writing this song suite 
sort of rock opera about the apocalypse the whole time I was kind of traveling around Italy and staying in hostels and taking my guitar with me. Tommy and I are very different people, <laughs> which is why this works. Yeah. Jesse just sits and watches. In Australia, I was drinking beers. <laughs> wow. That's Australian for beer. <laughs> are, are they beers? Are they beers? <laughs> So, okay, swinging back, swinging back. We're in we're in Raleigh, North Carolina. We're sleeping on a floor, and we ha- Tommy has somehow been convinced to empty his savings account to pay for this record. I didn't have any money. Same. We had nothing. And I, Well, I had lucked into, I was a park ranger for the National Park Service during my summers in college, and then some you know, part-time during the school year. So in hindsight, it wasn't that much money, but at that time, that was an incredible amount. To be earning $20 an hour in college in 2005, 2006, felt like I had won the lottery. So I all of a sudden had some money, but I drained it all for this record, which I was terrified of. I remember that process being like... Do you remember how much it cost, the record? The whole thing, I believe, we paid in installments and the whole thing was $10,000. That felt like so much money. At right. the time, I remember. Yeah. It's worth noting that, you know, these days you can actually, we could make a record for cheaper than that. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, totally. I mean, Cheers, we probably, you know, it was probably cheaper than that when it comes down to it. But but it is important to note, like, there weren't other options. Like, this is, we our computers couldn't have done it. You had to buy gear. You had to buy microphones. Like, the whole recording in your bedroom thing did not exist. That's all happened while we've been a band and been touring. Like the only thing you could do was find someone or somewhere to record your band. And so I think, yeah, that 10,000 was for those songs. And I think we had eight days in the studio. Is that right? Is that all we had? I, I think you're right. I think it was just eight days, which is crazy. It's like eight days to make a whole record. And, you know, None of us had done this before, so it's not like nowadays we, we could make a record in eight days if we needed to. Now it's because like we know what we're doing, we know how to record drums. Like Jesse did all of the drums to a click. If you don't know what that means, that means in his ears while he's recording, there's a tempo that has been predetermined for the song, and Tom uh, Jesse's listening to that click in his ears, gank gank gank, and playing drums to it, so that he stays in time and it's easier to record over and make edits and that and that sort of thing. And that was something I had never done before in my life. And we didn't know that was going to happen. <laughs> we really didn't. I mean, I w- it's, it's, we didn't know anything. Which is so funny in hindsight, isn't it? It's my fault. I was naive. But, you know, and these songs, so the song, we went into the studio extremely well rehearsed. You know, we had arranged these songs ourselves, essentially. And our goal was to get in there and get them down with enough time to kind of do the fun part, which is add a bunch of bells and whistles. Instead, what happened is, you know, you try, you typically will track the drums first, and then you'll overdub stuff on top. I struggled so much to play to a click track because at that point, I had been a drummer for nine years, almost a decade. I was a good drummer, but I had zero experience playing to a click track. And that is, that is just, that's a really bad idea to go into a professional recording studio, no click track experience, and try to and try to do that. I, I don't recommend that. You got to practice. Got to practice that metronome. But we didn't know. It's not like, I, I don't remember ever having, a converse, ever having a conversation and saying, Jesse, you need to practice with yep. the metronome. It just... So I got through it. Drums took, we thought drums would maybe take two days. They definitely took four days to track. And then... Did they really take four days to track? Um, they did. I remember that. I think they took four days to track. And then, you know, there was some editing. 
And, you know, when I say editing, it's like you got to slide some stuff around because of that silly click track. Now, some bands, they don't record your click. That's cool. Depends on the song. But, uh, you know, we were trying to be a pop rock band and it's important. It to, made sense. Look, these it songs are complex and you needed to be able to edit and move stuff around. And it just was what it was. But it did what what the problem became that we ran out of time and and we technically got the record accomplished but we didn't get to do any of the fun stuff that i think we had thought that we were getting into so everything other than drums we recorded in probably two takes i I, i'm not sure it was four days it might have been three days yeah i think it was seven or eight days in total which for anybody listening i mean that's just a lot to try to cram in when you think about all the guitar and all the piano and all the vocal layers and yeah we did get some cool stuff in right at the end Yes. We got some timpani. Harpsichord. Yeah. Timpani, harpsichord. I think at some point I realized like, oh, we forgot to put like harmony. Like, you know, our oh, band yeah. has some good harmonies and I was listening and I was like, Tommy, none of your harmonies are on the record. And I think we remember that in like the final couple hours of recording, maybe. But that's how it was. I, it's funny. I, when I think back on it, like it was stressful, but mostly I was just so excited to be making a record. Like, it was just, the whole thing was just so cool to me. You know, do, like, timpani, because I was such a huge Ben Folds 5 fan, and they used timpani so well, I just wanted a song that had timpani in it. Or, like, harpsichord, because that felt like a cool instrument, and I've always wanted to play a harpsichord, so we recorded that for the end of Under My Skin and little things like that. All of it just felt like the most exciting thing I'd ever done. And we played a lot of Mario Kart. That's, that's honestly my dominating memory of that space. <laughs> Is waiting for things to get edited, yes, like drums yeah. to get edited and playing Mario Kart. Being in a studio is so boring. People should know, like, even in an eight day like marathon thing, you're mostly just like staring at the wall for ten hours a day. Now we've been uh, discussing this for about a half hour. Should we play a little? Yeah, you want to count us in? <laughs> I need a click track. I think Ben. I think you count in this song actually. Technically, one, two, three, four. Sing like that anymore. I don't sing it's crazy. I think that I would lie. You sing better now. <laughs> no, we were both doing these like. There's something about lie. There's like the vowels are funny. Yeah, there's a concrete, con- concrete live room. So lots of uh, reverb. Wow. I mean, don't have to listen to the whole thing, but yeah. Um, well, uh, what I'm struck by in remembering is that by far the best thing about the sound of Let Lemon Like Ghosts is the drum. The drums sound awesome on that record. They really do. They do. They're great. You could tell that 60% of our time in the studio was spent <laughs> on the drums. <laughs> no, they do. They they do sound good. I sold that snare drum, which that was a mistake. What an idiot. <laughs> I was playing my ass off. I, I was getting bad tendonitis. I mean, I've learned a lot over the years, but that was like, we just threw ourselves into the fire. The record does sound good. It is funny to like, you know, we're all in our 
late 30s now and have been doing this for so long. And like I, I had I had only just started singing in public like two years before that, three years before that. Like I my voice wasn't ready. We we're still figuring it out. Same. Uh, Tommy, you and I both sing with like accents on this record. Yeah, I have a southern I have a loud southern accent on this record. A loud southern drawl. And I sound like I'm just studied abroad in England and I'm that guy. Uh, no, I've I didn't live in England, but I did study there for six months. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't have an accent. I was raised in Kentucky. It's like, fuck you, kid. <laughs> well, talk talk about Good Day, because you wrote that in England, right? Yeah, I wrote, th- I wrote that in England. And I, I So I had that, that piano pattern, and I remember being obsessed with it and loving the way it feels and thinking about those hits and where they're going to land. And my mom had always talked about – the concept actually comes – it does come from my mom. She would talk about this street. She wishes she could take everyone that she loved and put them on a street – at varying distances, depending on how often you wanted to see a person. So all the people you've like collected and known throughout your life could could be in one place. And that sort of entered in my head. That's foundationally what the what the song is about, about being on that street for a day. I also have to think I while I was studying in England that semester, I fell in love with Tally Hall. Massively, massively fell in love with Tally Hall. And I genuinely can't remember if I wrote Good Day before I encountered their song, Good Day, or if it was after and I didn't realize it. I don't know which one of those happened, but they've also got... Well, we should zoom out for anybody who doesn't know. So Tally Hall is a fabulous, fabulous band that we toured with in 2010. And anyways, if you haven't heard them before, they only have two albums. They're both amazing. You should check them out. I like to say hello and welcome you. Good day, that is my name. We're very similar bands at the end of the day. So you, you're not sure. I've, I've always wanted to ask you that, actually, and always forget. Like, you think it might have been inspired by the, their... It, it definitely wasn't on purpose. I don't... I, I remember there may have been months between hearing that song and then coming back to it, but I, I don't remember. So I either owe Andrew Horowitz an apology or <laughs> or we're, we're cool. It's such a good song. I mean, like, I'm, I, I, I kind of love that, like, we have that symmetry that both of our first albums start with a song called Good Day. I think that's really fun. Yeah, I, it was not on purpose. I, it was. I think it just happened to to sort out that way. But yeah, that I mean, that song really was one of those tunes that I like. I worked on that while walking every day. There was a forty minute walk from my dorm in in Bristol, England, to class, and it was like across the downs. And it was cold and it was rainy, and I would just huddle down and just walk. And I try to walk, walk with the beat of the song and work on. Everybody say what a good day that it was for everybody. So, trying to figure out how those lyrics would land and how that would spin. I, I distinctly remember walking and, and practicing and trying to figure out how that would flow through. Wow. Dude, you know what's really funny about that is like when I think about whenever we play Good Day, it's the easiest song for me to like kind of chicken strut around the stage. It's got a feel to it. Oh, yeah. And now I'm thinking about it. It's like you you were probably that's probably the exact pace you were walking when you wrote it. Yeah, like a little fast, but doing the thing. Yeah, it probably was. Yeah. Which I don't it, it's funny, I don't usually write that way. I'm almost always right sitting at a piano. But that was actually the first time in my life, which is crazy, that I really didn't have like consistent, easy access to a to a piano. So oh, there'd wow. be days where I wouldn't get to one all the time or whatever. So I think I spent more time in my head trying to write and figure that stuff out at that point. And I remember when you, well, I remember when you brought it to us, our junior year of college, that when we were, or was it se- senior? Senior. Yeah, when we were working on it. I don't, Jesse, I don't remember if you were in on this, but I was trying to make the chorus sound like, like with the 
I want. I really wanted it to sound like "Baby, You're a Rich Man," the Beatles song. Oh yeah, yeah. Which it does not. It does not. <laughs> That's cool. I didn't know that. I can't remember that. It's a weird chorus, and I I do have an anecdote about. Like, I came up with the drums for that chorus because we went down to our practice room and usually our practice room at the time wasn't, like, no one else used it. They could, but typically we're the only band that used it. I went down and uh, it had been a long day. We were there for a night rehearsal. The drums were, like, set up in this totally chaotic foreign way. And I didn't, normally I was neurotic about that at the time, but I just sat down and they they were totally, like, bizarre to me just geographically orientation wise. And I just played like kind of the weirdest thing I could think of. And it kind of, I don't know. I, I'm not going to say I came up with that rhythm, but like the drum part. Pretty, I'm going to put on the chorus. Pretty bananas. Let me hear this. What that, what kicks out to me is, is I think, We've always we've made being in a band hard for you, Jesse. And I'm going to take this opportunity to say I see that because we haven't given you a bass player. Thank you. Now, do I get credit for playing bass with my left hand for 18 years? No, and I should, but that's fine. We'll work on this later. But you matched Tommy's guitar part, rather Tommy matched your kick drum as if it were the bass. He's kind of playing a bass line. Totally. Yep. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know if I did this the first time we played it, but you know, to this day, I, I, I normally don't do this kind of thing, but I just have a drumstick in my left hand to do the hi-hat snare. And then my right hand is shaking a tambourine. Some of you have seen this song live and that's still what I do is I play tambourine while playing the drum kit. It's very impressive. So crazy. What is impressive is you always throw it at the end of the chorus and then you catch it and everybody cheers. And I always forget you're going to do that. And I think I've done something cool because I'm singing. And then I look and you've just caught a tambourine. <laughs> it's like the, doing the same juggling trick for two decades. Clown, the clown school paid off. <laughs> <laughs> GW? <laughs> yeah. So, but before we move on to the next song, I do want to say that we haven't given a clear shout out to the producer of the record who we are still friends with, which there wasn't a lot of time to produce. But, you know, he did what he could in that time, which is Ted, Ted Comerford, still a good friend of ours. Yes, indeed. Wow. Thank you. Wow. Stand, standing O for, for Buddy Ted. And the engineer, who engineers are often like the unsung creators of albums. Because yep. just that process of actually tracking stuff and being on the ground floor for getting sounds can be more defining in so- sometimes than the production. And that was Matt Boswell. Here we go. That's right. This is a 36-second clip of cheering, so I'm just going to let it run. Just kidding. No, it's good. <laughs> Anyway, way to go, Boswell. <laughs> I, I guess, yeah, I don't know. Maybe we, we maybe we should talk to them about their experience making a record at some point. But I wonder if, like, what it even registered. I mean, if you think about, they're making records constantly. Such a blip. You know, if you're making a record every week, this random... My guess is they didn't think that we were going to do anything. Yeah, I mean, a bunch of college kids who were just like, here's your money, can we record our demos? Yeah. You know, like, that was the vibe, for sure, from us. <laughs> no, I don't think... Like yeah, like in eight days to make a record, they're like, oh my god, all right, these these kids, we'll just do this and see what happens. And yeah, jokes on them, we're fucking huge. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I, 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 Ted, I think even I thought I saw him comment on something about one of our posts about the podcast recently. So he might he might actually be listening to us. In which case, hi Ted, what's up, Ted? We should do a uh, producers past and present. We'll have uh, Ted on. We'll have Ted on. Yeah. yeah. 
Okay, track two. Hold it in. Also known as Jingle Bell Rock. tracks on the record i think this is one of the few that's not very disorienting for me to hear like this yeah. this sounds correct to me i felt i was having the same thought like everything the instruments sound good i don't think we would do that differently now really we'd mess it up probably we'd overdo we'd, we'd overthink it yeah we tried to make something it would be like yeah we need something people could dance to <laughs> it would like just not be right it's funny though i i you know if I, it shows i often i i introduce it by saying like I sat down at the piano and I tried to think of the stupidest thing I could play and I played this. And that's not a joke. I really did sit. I remember it was, I was back home in, in Kentucky and sitting on the uh, my you know the little upright piano I learned on and everything, I don't know if we'd had a conversation. I don't remember what was going on, but everything I was playing was so complicated. I really was trying to like slow it down a bit. And I was like, what could I just play that feels dumb? And I, I just, I, I put my finger, you know, held, I put my finger, you know, held up one finger with my left hand, two in my right and started plunking that out. And then the song came out of it and the whole thing ended up being simple. And then I, it was just, it was, you know, that it was all about the wordplay and all the different uses of hold it in and different ways of playing with those, you know, that little turn of phrase. And that was it. I don't. I don't remember where the good grief came from. Maybe because it feels a little like the song feels innocent. I had like a little Charlie Brownie feel, or I don't remember how it how it happened. Do y'all remember me bringing that to you? Do you remember hearing it? Oh yeah, yeah. I remember you playing it. And I, I mean, I think that that song was just immediately charming to to both of us. Like it was like. I mean, you can you can speak to your impression, but I mean, for me, it was like I, I thought of it as like the obladio blada of the record, and I was pretty excited that like you had come with something that kind of made me think of the Beatles or something, you know? Because like that wasn't we weren't really operating that sort of zone, and that song just has a really simple Paul McCartney sort of thing going on that I really liked immediately. That's cool. Yeah, simple. Jeff, what what'd you think? Yeah, I mean, same exact thing, and I I remember using it as a prompt to play the simplest thing I could come up with. Now these days, you know, I can do I can do simpler than that. I know how, but but back then <laughs> back then growing up, you know, we really Everybody should know that Jesse can play simpler drums than that. He can't. <laughs> Here's the thing is like I think we, you know, listening back to our first record, it's like we're a little bit of we're a weird band, but we kind of for a while like thought of ourselves as like we're going to make it. 
we're going to be a big pop band. And you listen to our recordings and the songs are like, the lyrics are bizarre. The songs are bizarre. It is important to like contextualize though. Cause like at this time, like Arcade Fire was huge. Like the indie band movement was weird. Weird was stuff big. was big. Right, right. So like Regina you know. Spector was getting big or like Joanna Newsom or like. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I didn't even, I didn't even think we were. It even fit in that world because we were like too mainstream or something. You know what I mean? Like we yeah. were too pop for DC. Yeah, kind like, of. Yeah, DC kinda. with with you know you're like Discord, you're you're Fugazi, you're whatever. Like DC was a heavier town than we didn't fit in. We, there was no ecosystem that we could slot into. Yeah, totally. Right, right. And we're yeah, we had this like sweet sugary thing. Yeah, I, I just remember trying to put simple dr- quote simple drums on this tune, and yeah, listening. It yeah, very it simple. You're welcome. And I was very excited for the opportunity to play some like hammy lead guitar on that part where, where it hangs on the five chord. Very fun. Yeah, I, Holden's great. It's like it is what it is. I, the Jingle Bell Rock thing did not occur to me. I feel like it was years before either of you even said anything to me about that. Well, now we've got now we have two songs in our catalog that it also sounds like. It kind of sounds like million dollar, million dollar, million oh, yeah, dollar. Yeah, yeah. And it also kind of sounds like take a little, take a little, take a little, take a little time. <laughs> yeah. Guys, major scales. What are you going to do? Jingle Bell Rock. Ah, yeah, you got there first. It's a huge influence for us, Jingle Bell Rock. Honestly, it's my favorite Jingle Bell related song that rocks. <laughs> Tommy, let's talk about BDIs on the horizon. Mm. Do you want to say anything before I play it or should I just start playing this puppy? Yeah, let's just uh, let's get that over with. Okay. There's a dead man hanging. Oh, that distortion effect's cool. Swamped over the steering wheel of an interstate runaway bursting into flames. Flames? Flames? And Devil was gently breathing, sleeping face down in my apartment. And like all his Black. friends, I'm growing tired oh. of his games. Game. And there's a homeless man arranging his hands, screaming to the beat, radiating from a poly scanner. He said the air was feeling good to me. It's cool and right as air can be. And a woman who sincerely believes in UFOs, who can blame her when the stars are hanging? This was a story told to me. <laughs> Harpsichord. Harpsichord. And now this is the age of 17. One which God himself dictated <laughs> to me. He said, this is how all this shit's going to be. When I blow your little planet into smithereens. Blow your little planet into smithereens. Haunted my dreams. Like an accident on replay on. Oh man, yeah. I mean, I think that's that's like when I think about "Let Live." Unfortunately, one of my bigger takeaways is I just didn't know how to sing yet, and I still love that whole suite of Apocalypse songs. And someday I'd actually like to just kind of re-record them and play with them and kind of you know do like a George Lucas special edition version of that. But the I can't get over the southern accent and that weird tone of voice that I was singing in because I think I'd just gotten over a cold and we were sleeping on the floor and eating chili for every single meal. We were not taking care of our bodies. We didn't know like how to, there's a vocal health. No, we were like being a little debaucherous on our off hours. Yeah, and, and with that vocal performance, I could also hear that 
I hear what I'm doing an impression of, and it's something very specific that I was into at that time, which was there were a few kind of like- Flaming lips. It's part Flaming Lips, it's part Jeff Tweedy, because he sings with a little bit of a drawl as well. And then I hear a little bit of, I, I had just discovered The Grateful Dead, and there's a little Jerry Garcia twang in there as well. <laughs> and I thought that was cool. And in hindsight, it's like, oh man, like what I would give to just whisper in my ear in that moment, like, don't sing, just try singing loud and without a Southern accent. <laughs> I didn't know to say that. That's just how you sang, though. And it, wasn't, it didn't sound weird at the time. Well, it, it is and it isn't, because when you hear live recordings of me from that era, I don't. I sound different. Oh, interesting. So it was like a weird in-studio thing. We only did like two takes of each song, you know? So it's like... Right. Yeah, it's not like we did a take and listened to it the next day and, and got to recut it. It was like, when you're done, you're done. Totally. I have to say, I I struggled with a piano part with that song more than any other song I've you've ever brought me, I've yeah. ever played. I think mostly because that song needs a bass player and it just needs chords, footballs, but I like didn't know what to do and nothing sounded good for so long. Well, and speaking of not having enough time, I always envision that song as being like a modest mouse, sort of a uh, like ocean breathed salty, like w one of those songs with like a lot of Mellotron pads and we never had the time to do it. So it, I've always heard that song as being very breathy and open and our version of it is, um, it's Cool, but it's very like herky jerky and trying to fill the space of every yeah. single moment. Yeah, right. And that, that, I mean, that speaks to how we arranged songs back then too. Our first three records, actually, we really did not spend any time experimenting with production before going into the record. We, it was us in a rehearsal room. So you basically had a drum kit, a guitar, a piano, and maybe one synth, but we just had to play it live in the room, you know? So you couldn't really like try on a bunch of different things and see And I what... think because we were playing it in the room, we were like filling the space and we all wanted parts that were cool and we all needed to be doing something yeah. that we stood by at every single moment, which look, I, this isn't a complaint either because it, it defined what this, this this record and our early record sound like and it's awesome. I think we've learned how to get out of each other's ways a little bit. We've we have all learned how to serve the song without thinking about our own instrument first. I think you know. Yeah. But I, you know, it's funny. BDI is like I, 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 the song itself. I actually still really love it. It's got a very special place in my heart. Is this the intro to the apocalypse thing? I think the lyrics are crazy. Like you know, because we're gonna go through all the you know apocalypsey stuff. What like what is it? Start the story. Like, how would you introduce, explain this song in the context of the whole suite? Well, Beady Eyes, I pictured as this, like, almost like there was another intro sort of, like, piece that I was working on that was supposed to, like, be before Beady Eyes, but I never finished it. So Beady Eyes was sort of like the, like the overture for, like, what the story is. So it's, like, just giving little scene snippets of what's happening as, as, as this apocalypse is coming. So yeah, it was just like little snippets that I was like writing down working that summer in downtown DC, I remember. So some of them are like little snippets and scenes from from Georgetown where I was working as a park ranger. Really at this time, Tommy, you were heavily a lyrics first person. For you sure. You know, like I feel like you would fill your your journal with just the wordiest words. Um and it's cool. You can hear that, you know. I feel like if someone had had like stolen your journal or found your journal at that time, they would have thought thought you just lost well, your mind. Well, to be honest, they still yeah, they still would sure. with my current one, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not just for the handwriting. I just like I 
this song is especially, I think I was at the end, we had this shape to like fill in stuff. And I just want to listen to it because I play this stuff live. I haven't listened to the end of this recording in a long time. Oh, it's crazy. But the the piano parts are all my classical piano like riffs and licks and trills. I just want to hear what happens. Apparently nothing. Apparently <laughs> nothing. You saw me press play, right? On the front seat, which it starts going down because the sun is just a supernova turn the other way around. Oh Lord. Yeah, I'm just going to be real music nerdy and be like, the, the things that are happening there is it's a chromatic run all the way up the piano, and then it's like a, a broken up arpeggiated G major chord down, followed by like the jazziest chord I knew at that time. It's like absolutely like my classical background plus the jazz I was studying at GW all smushing together in that one insanely chaotic moment. Wow. I am proud. I, I do still like the lyrics of that song, which I think is is cool. Like, I, I think it's it's like, I, I don't know, there's a lot of imagination and I can hear that sort of rambling world that I was living in at that time in my imagination. And I, it captures what I was hoping to capture with some of this apocalypse stuff, which is not that I was actually preaching the end of the world or that it was serious. For, to me, it was a parody. Yeah. Like it was like making light of this sort of biblical, like you know, hellfire thing and sort of like toying with it and imagining, I, I think in my mind, it was like sort of a Vonnegut, Kurt Vonnegut way of reimagining what that is. That's really cool. I think you got that across. I, yeah. If anyone listens to that song and takes it seriously in like a preachy way. I, I had, I did have somebody reach out at one point who was offended by something that uh, a cartoon that I had done. Well, that's not surprising. That they perceived as being a- anti-Christian and they were saying that they were so disappointed because they had been such a fan of my you know, early songwriting. And I was like, oh, you didn't get it then. You know, like I was kind of, I was kind of making light of, of the book of revelations. Yeah. They're going to love this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That's tough. It's hard when you don't get irony. Yeah. It's tough. Sometimes you get under someone's skin, you know? Oh, there it is. How much can you start it? How much can you fit under your skin? I wish you were dead, babe. I wish you were dead. I can fit too. I can fit too. I can fit two people under my skin. I can fit two people under my skin. And I will prove it if you will listen. You crawl up in there, you join me within. I can do your heart beating under my skin. Thank you. 
know. That's a really fun song. Um, musically, this is like all just like uh, really fun piano patterns, relatively simple chords. But definitely wrote this while I was in England thinking about my family. The, the whole second verse, my family had a castle way back when I would have lived there if they had more male children. It's actually, it's true, but it's not true. My extended family, my dad's grandparents were, I'm going to mess this up and this is permanently documented, Lady and Earl of Mount Edgecombe, I think that the seventh or eighth, maybe great-great-grandparents. And they still lived in a uh, castle uh, in Plymouth. Um, and they had a country home called Cateel Mansion out in the Cotswolds. And it was aristocracy, cringe. But then the uh, the only male heir on our side of the family died at the Battle of Dunkirk. They only actually found his um, remains like this year, which is pretty crazy. So he, he died at Dunkirk. And when that happened, because hooray aristocracy, it wouldn't pass on to any of his sisters it went to a sheep farmer in New Zealand who uh, eventually moved back and kicked everybody out. But the remainder of the family fortune had been spent rebuilding the castle, which had been bombed by the Germans. So they built the family, the castle back with the remaining money and donated the estate to the National Trust. And that was the end of all that nonsense for my family. Isn't that bizarre? That's so weird. <laughs> I'm hung up on they found his remains like last year. Like it's so weird. They just yeah they just I guess they've been doing some like exhuming or some fine like they they tested DNA of some human remains they found in Dunkirk and it came up as his. They were able to like genealogically find him. That's insane. Yes, yeah, so they just they just did a some extended family just did a, a burial and a service for him, which is crazy. Yeah, great uncle Piers. So yeah, I, my family had a castle way back when. I would have lived there if they had more male children. Yeah, it, I still wouldn't have because I wasn't next in line by any stretch. But it's still a fun little lyric. But yeah, this this song it's like all like wordplay and I don't know. It's, a, it's just a goofy tune. I sometimes I don't know where songs come from. Sometimes I don't know how it happens. I know lyrics appear for reasons like that. But I was just like I I, I often would and still do just start singing at the piano and whatever comes out for the most part, are just lyrics. You know, there's the, there's the I can fit two, T-W-O, I can fit two, T-O-O, random wordplay stuff, and I don't know, it's just having some fun with the tune. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely hear that, like, I don't, again, like, I don't think it was intentional for you at the time, but but I hear that cheeky McCartney sort of thing happening in this song, and actually a question I've always wondered about, the lyrics in the chorus, the, oh, no, not a chance in hell, oh, I've heard you sing, but it ain't too well. How does that relate to the verse for you? Or is it kind of just like a fun... It doesn't. It's just one of those things that feels right. It feels right, yeah. Okay, I, I didn't think so. I but... mean, it's all directed to somebody, right? Like, it's all like, you know, how much can you fit under your skin? Like, it's all at a person. It's describing a person. And so it's just a continuation of a thought process of an imaginary person on the other end of this, you know, very one-sided conversation. Yeah, I, it's almost like, I feel like it's like a conversation that the Mad Hatter is having, like, in a Lewis Carroll, you know, book. Yeah, well, especially because you've got the Cheshire Cat reference in the bridge. The whole thing's a little manic and wacky and very, like, stream of conscious, like, almost world-building within a song. And that's just what came out. And I do remember this was the last arrival of of songs that ended up on Let Live and Let Ghost. This one snuck in right at the end, and we were like, right before, like right before we were going to record, yeah. we figured out how to play this song. It was that and uh, Under My Skin and Where All the Scientists Now were like the two that like snuck yeah. in at the last second. I thought Victoria was like the one that we snuck in 
Well, I don't mean uh, in terms of budgeting for time. I mean, just in terms of like that we had arranged. Okay. But no, you're right. Victoria was on the later end too. Now, Under My Skin, why does it have so many friggin' streams? What's the deal? Yeah, it's our second most streamed song of all time. But it's from 2007. There is a podcast called the, the Magnus Archives. Yes. And apparently it, it this relates to one of the characters. I don't understand it fully, but some wonderful little piece of the internet got hold of it. And and I think it related directly to one of the characters. And now it's got like 25 million streams. Just wacky pants. It is insane. Like, because this, this song, I, I love Under My Skin, but I don't think any of us for an entire decade thought of this as being like one of the more consequential tracks from this record. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but... Oh, for sure. I mean, look, we've always loved playing it, but it got phased out because it wasn't one of those tunes. And now, like in a live setting, and now it's like... It's kind of weird if we don't play it all of a sudden because it streams it's so our well. hit. <laughs> it's our hit. It's funny to think that like somebody who checks out our band now on Spotify thinks that we were very successful from our first record because of the song Under My Skin. Fascinating. It's <laughs> so wacky. I love it, though. It's great. Yeah. Very strange. All right. let's. It, it, it's time for... Do we want to do these next two as one thing? Or do you want to separate? I, I almost wonder if we should, should we save them for a second part? Yeah, yeah, actually, you're right. We're already at an hour. I think we save it for the second part and we get into Tommy's massive, spectacular uh, <laughs> end of the world experience in its entirety. Guys, this has been a treat. This is really fun. Nice little memory lane. It's nice to talk about our band. There aren't enough podcasts focused on our early albums. (laughs) I've been saying this for a long time. I keep writing Joe Rogan, Seth Rogan, whoever, and they just say, come on, let's go. So uh, any of y'all out there, if you have further questions, and so we're going to do another, just to be clear, this is a two-part series on the making of Let Live and Let Ghosts. We're going to do the second part later, obviously. But if you have questions that you're dying to ask, you can go ahead and email your questions about the making of this record to famishpod at gmail.com. F-A-M-E-I-S-H-P-O-D at gmail.com. Also, you don't. it doesn't have to be questions related to this album. It can be any question at all. We would like to get your questions, and then we're going to talk about them Yeah. in answer form. Yeah. And uh, hopefully some of you have listened to earlier episodes and know that we won't always be discussing our band. We will be having our friends on, uh, people we don't know, producers, who knows, managers. Yeah, if you've made it this far, you're good. Like, we don't have to convince you of anything. True. (laughs) Or you've fallen asleep, you've fallen asleep, and you're flying through the clouds, and your dog is there. Why does it have your mom's face? If you made it this far, like, who hurt you? What the hell is going on? But seriously, uh, thank you for listening. <laughs> and stay tuned for part two. Anything uh, else? No, it's part two. It's great. It's coming. All right. It's theme song time, boys. See you later. Bye. Pretty soon I'm going to be famous. A little more famous than you. Certain people will greet my name with a proud and mighty. And one glorious day my songs will be played at an airport chili. <laughs>